Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join Pastor Bernie Diaz for the message. You know how somebody tells you something about you, and they may mean something else? Or like a backhanded compliment? You ever receive one of those, like, you're a really good driver for a woman? <laughs> Don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> or, you look great for your age, you know? And then there are hypothetical stories that people tell you that might convict you and me, whether they're really meaning to or not, or whether they're told about you or not, and then some might be about us in a hypothetical way, right? How do you react to those kind of stories? I'll give you one example about that. You may know the story about Nathan. He was a trusted prophet, advisor to King David. He confronted David's sins of conspiracy to murder and adultery and fornication with Bathsheba. And we learned something in 2 Samuel, first off, that, you know, they had a really good bond relationship. Nathan was a trusted counselor. He exhorted him to build the first temple. And uh, they did a lot of ministry together. And five chapters later, though, we see something happen. The Lord commanded Nathan to share a story of a rich man who took and killed a poor man's only lamb. And David was really angry, justifiably, at this injustice. Listen to his reaction, David, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 5, he says, David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he should restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Yikes. You see, that story was about David. David had blood on his hands. And Nathan let him know that through a story. So he rebuked the king. And God brought judgment upon David for his sin, including the death of the child he had with Bathsheba. But David repented. And he was forgiven. And he remained king. But that little story was like a parable from Nathan to David. And it was pretty effective, right? Maybe you've experienced something like that before. If you haven't, maybe you will in the near future. And maybe some of you today will experience this. And that's the lesson in our text. You know, Mark doesn't record many parables in the gospel. This is the longest one he has in here. And this is one of only three parables that are in what we call the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That's common to all three. And this is what's commonly known as the parable of the wicked tenants. And it comes on the heels, catch up, of this conflict that began at the temple between Jesus and the religious Jews in the midst of Passion Week, okay? And it escalated into a question of authority. Who had ultimate authority to reign in Israel among God's people? So Jesus asked them a question. They couldn't answer it. And then that further frustrated him, them, when he told them two short stories on this Tuesday of the Passion Week. The first one 
is the parable of the two sons. We don't have it in Mark. We have it in Matthew. It's a really good one about obedience, ultimate obedience. The second one we have here is the parable of the vineyard or of the tenants. And what you have here, we're going to unpack this little pocket history and prophecy concerning the fate of Israel is, believe it or not, it may impact you personally more than one way. And what the Lord Jesus does in this short story is he talks about Israel's past, present, and future. So we're going to look at the past first, first five verses. And let's look at the beginning of the text. And he began to speak to them in parables. Does everybody have a pretty good idea what a parable is? And if not, that's okay. I'll give you just a little brief summary of what a parable is. The Greek word refers to something that is thrown alongside or laid down aside something else to explain it. We would call it today a juxtaposition. And it was a common form of Jewish teaching back then where you would just lay down a picture of something alongside a truth by comparison to make that truth easier to understand, okay? So Jesus used familiar figures to do this. You're familiar with some of them. There's soil, seed, birds, thorns, rocks, wheat, weeds, leaven, hidden treasure, and a pearl, all of that. Now, Here's the real interesting question. Why would the Lord speak to these religious leaders in parables? In general, he had two reasons primarily for speaking in parables. The first one would be this. He would bring greater understanding of truth to his apostles and disciples. That's why preachers today would sometimes tell a story, illustration, like the introduction I began with today, means of comparison. A little bit of a parable. Second, though, it was a form of judgment on his opponents. Yeah, his enemies, those that hated and persecuted him, that they were what we call stiff-necked, beyond redemption. And he would confuse these people with these parables. And they would usually fail to understand them. They couldn't make the connections. For instance, in the parable of the sower, go over to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13, for a second, and you'll see this reminder. Jesus explained this parable to his disciples, but not to the religious leaders on purpose. The disciples asked this question, well, why then? Why the parables? And listen to what Jesus, how he responds in Matthew 13, verse 11. He answered them, to you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has more, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never persevere, for this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest, or unless, they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. That's a judgment, folks. Jesus is saying they did not understand because they could not understand. And Jesus made sure they wouldn't understand. And so it starts here. Pick it up and back in our text again in verse 1. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a pit for the wine press, built a tower, leased it to tenants, and went into another country. Okay? 
a fence. A wall is built here. So this watchtower is a part of it. And then a landowner would lease or rent this property. Now, the religious leaders, they should have picked up the reference, at least the beginning of this parable right away and what it's referring to. Because you know what it is? It's a paraphrase from the book of Isaiah, from the prophet Isaiah in the fifth chapter, where it says in Isaiah 5, verse 1, this is a song. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, cleared it on stones of stones, planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, hewed out a wine vat in it. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Who's he talking about? In Old Testament scripture, Israel was often referred to as God's vineyard. All right? God is the vine dresser. He's the creator and the owner of that vineyard. So you need to know who's who in this little story. Now, they would know, the Jews, that it would not be a foreign concept for a landowner in Israel, even a foreign investor, to buy land, hire tenants or farmers. You could call them a manager, a steward. Amen. And they would run. That's Matt. I hadn't heard Matt in a while. Good to hear Matthew. So they would run and work the vineyard, you know, for the owner. And it would take time to cultivate a good crop. In fact, it might even take at least five years to build the structure for them to plow the ground, plant, reap before they got grapes. Then they would squeeze the juice out of the grapes, take them to market. So it was a process. And that's where you get this idea of this journey that the, that the, that the landowner is on. So you got the story now. Who's who? The tenants, these farmers, these are vine growers. You know who they represent? The Jewish religious leadership. All right? And who is that? That, in Jesus' time, is the Sanhedrin. And they're made of scribes, teachers of the law, Sadducees, Pharisees, the priests, the elders. It was kind of like their Supreme Court at the time. So there's this journey this landowner goes on. Other translations say a far journey. And that is actually describing the past history of Israel. That's from the promised land being established all the way through the intertestamental period. The intertestamental period is those four centuries between the Old and New Testament, where God did not offer direct revelation to people. And the synagogue system, the rabbinical system, comes online and all of that. And that is all Israel's history. It's all talking about this far journey of the, of the vine dresser okay, of the landowner, and that goes to the point of John the Baptist and Jesus coming on the scene. And then you get this in verse 2, when the season came, time for harvest, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. So now we have a new character in the story. Servant. The servants or slaves in the story are the prophets of God. The prophets and preachers of God over history they remained obedient. They preached God's word to the people of Israel. And by the way, picture yourself, if you're a Christian and you've been in the faith for any length of time, picture yourself as one of those servants today. Because a doulos, a slave, is someone that's totally submitted to, surrendered to, and obedient to their master, to their Lord. That's number one. And number two, you've been entrusted with preaching as well, not just me. Someone who has the gospel, God's word commissioned to share with the lost, is a disciple who makes disciples. 
So let's see what happened to the first servant here, verse 3. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. That is a really strong Greek verb. They beat him. That describes big-time violence. In English, you could translate that word as scourging. You're beaten to the point, maybe whipped, of having your skin removed from your body as a victim. And that would be used, of course, by Jesus, the same word when he described what happened to him, what the Jews were going to do to him, and even what some of the apostles were going to go through. That's how bad the servant was beaten. Paul used the word as a synonym for boxing when he boxed his own body in discipline. So this servant in the parable, he's sent away, he's empty-handed. After being beaten, he's got no fruit, nothing to give to the owner. Fruit, in this case, is the spread of God's kingdom through God's word. And today, that would be through the gospel. So God's men, carrying the law and the word of God, sometimes they can be beaten, come away empty-handed. Moses went through this for a season too. Verse 4 says, again, he sent to them another servant. They struck him on the head, treated him shamefully. That's another interesting word. This second servant, literally, it says, had his head bashed in. It's the only time that word, that verb is used in the New Testament. And then Matthew puts it in an interesting way. He refers in plural to a group of slaves that were larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. And not only that, there were several of them that were treated disgracefully, insulted, mocked. Verse 5 says, and he sent another, and him they killed, and so with many others. Some they beat. Some they killed. Wow. And in terms of the mocking, you've had, some of you have dealt with that, right? Some others were beaten. Some were killed. They were killed by the very people who claimed to be of God and obedient to Him. One of the more familiar figures in biblical history that had to go through this, of course, is the weeping prophet. Who is who? Jeremiah. Listen to Jeremiah chapter Seven. You know, Jeremiah preached for a long time. Jeremiah had no converts in his ministry. It says in this command from God to Jeremiah in 723, Obey my voice and I will be your God. He says, tell the people this. Obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people. And walk in all the way that I command you that it may be well with you. But they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts and went backward and not forward. And he says later in verse 25, I persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day, yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. I mean, just think of that, right? You know, you hear stiff neck. You don't hear that kind of idiom today. You know, you got a neck that won't turn, won't move, won't listen, Right? They stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. So they shall speak all these words to them, but they will not. You shall speak all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. You shall call to them, and they will not answer you. This is what Jesus is picturing in his parable. And it's the same in chapter 26 and verse 8. Back with Jeremiah, they later threw him in a well. They jailed him. They warned despite that, he warned them about the Babylonian captivity. Seventy years to come, they blew him off. And interesting to note, 
Some of today's preachers are warning the church, are warning the country about what's happening today, and they're being ignored, right? And of course, you talk about these prophets and their fate, what they've gone through. John the Baptist was killed. Others were stoned. History tells us Isaiah was sawn in two by the Hebrews. This has been Israel's history for centuries, the way the people, particularly the religious leaders, persecuted their own prophets, men sent by God to warn them and judge them, of which there have been so many. You can go through the history, Ezekiel, Daniel, Amos, Zechariah. But you know what else you notice here? Still God's love for these people because he's not the God of second chances, but multiple chances. He's sending in the story one servant after another, after another, after another. I mean, look at how many servants he sent to the nation. And it's tenants or it's stewards. These were shepherds. And they're getting warnings. to teach, and, and they're being taught. Collect the crop. There's three tenants. There's three servants in this story that meet this, this outcome. Many of them. Before we get to the beloved son. Time and again, the Lord, by his grace and mercy, keeps giving Israel chances to repent and be redeemed. And they won't. You know, I, I struggle with patience. How many of you struggle with patience here today? That should be like the majority of us, if we're honest. God is patient. He doesn't struggle with that. Just by the standpoint that so many lost people are breathing today and alive, we'll tell you that. Second Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, that all should reach repentance. So here's a question. How about you? If you haven't met Christ yet, if you haven't come to Christ yet, how many chances do you think you're going to get? And do you know how many chances you and I deserve? None. Zero. Absolutely. In fact, you'll see in Matthew 23 that Jesus is even more direct with the rulers Probably on the next day, Wednesday of Passion Week, he's pronouncing these curses, these woes of judgment on the scribes and Pharisees. And listen to what he says, how he ties this together. Matthew 23, verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets, decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. That means, in other words, you're hypocrites. On the one hand, you quote and build monuments, statues to these former prophets when your fathers persecuted them, killed them, and you're getting ready to do the same thing, and now you're going to suffer for it. You are adding to your own guilt. Fill up the measure. And he says in verse 33 there, Jesus says, you serpents, you brood of vipers. That's another way of saying you bag of snakes. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Yikes. And then Jesus, by analogy now, he goes a step further. He moves from the past to the present for Israel. 
Go back to Mark 12. And look what it says in verse 6. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent to them saying, they will respect my son. One servant left to send in the story. Who do you think that is? It's Jesus. He's talking about himself prophetically of what's going to happen to him in just a few days later in the week. And he seems to be answering this question that's been asked here. We talked about it last time. By what authority do you do these things? Like they asked him. And now Jesus is here saying, in essence, I am the authority. I'm the owner of the vineyard. I'm the rightful heir to it. I'm the beloved son. And beloved means the esteemed, favored, favorite son whom the Father has sent. And the reference you know is unmistakable. We've heard this phrase before, right? Beloved son, where do you see that? God the Father referred to God the Son as his beloved son when he was first baptized to start the ministry. And then remember in the Mount of Transfiguration, we saw that in chapter 8, the Lord appeared with Moses and Elijah before the inner circle of the apostles. And the Father said, this is my beloved son. So the owner in this story is basically saying, in the story, he's saying, well, my own son, this is my son, my blood. They can't touch him. They're not going to do that. They wouldn't go to that extent. They'd never do that. Maybe in the parable. That's why we don't get hung up on all the details of the parable. The point is, God knows, we know from Scripture, what they are about to do with the beloved son. So Jesus, really, it's like, you've killed the prophets, you've stoned and beat those who came from the Father in heaven. Now here I am, and you're going to do it to me all over. Verse 7, but those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him. And the inheritance, the property, the possession will be ours. So rather than the tenants re really respecting the son, they reject the son. And rather than being intimidated, you would think, killing the land over his son, being scared off, they're emboldened. They're psyched up to kill him, thinking greedily, that whatever's owed to the son, they're going to get. And you wonder how that might happen. Well, get this. According to traditional law, land that remained unclaimed for three years would become the property of those working it. So they were covetous. As well as being wicked and hypocritical and prideful. We know that. They can't wait for the son to be gone. And they took him and they killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. This is what's going to happen to Jesus in less than 72 hours from this event in the text. And when it says they threw him out of the vineyard, that's actually talking about Jerusalem as the vineyard. Sure enough, Hebrews 13. And talking about Jesus making the final sacrifice for sin, it says, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate. The gate is the walled city of Jerusalem. In order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So there's the why they threw him out of the vineyard. You know why? Because a Jew at that time would be ashamed to have one of their own killed in the walled city, in the holy city by the Romans. So this story of judgment, now we've seen he's laid out the past, the present consequences of disobedience, and now finally the future, which you see in verses 9 to 12. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. So this is their coming judgment. The Jews are going to lose everything. That's what God is going to do. Matthew, in fact, quotes the Lord saying, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. 
That is serious judgment on fruitless religion. These wicked tenants and many of the wicked people that supported them, they're going to be killed physically and spiritually for killing the Christ. Remember I mentioned that song of the vineyard, Isaiah 5, referring to Israel? Well, something's going to happen to that vineyard as well, that nation, for what they've done and what they've been doing, consistently rejecting God, His law, His messengers, the Messiah. They're just consequences, people, when we reject God's revelation, His Word, including the Word that became flesh, which is His Son, and the opportunities to get right with Him. It says in Isaiah Five, I'm back there. Now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I've not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I'll remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. God gave Israel every chance every resource and opportunity and their leadership necessary to produce the fruit they should have produced and they wouldn't take it. And there is a price to pay for that. And I remind you, sure enough, this temple and the city of Jerusalem is going to be destroyed by the Romans in just three short decades after this event. And as a result of that, the vineyard or the kingdom is going to be given to others. Who do you think the others are? Well, Jesus told them in Matthew's account, he put it this way, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. The other tenants to come, folks, are the, is the church. Gentiles. Non-Jews. Isaiah said that again in Isaiah 65. And I'll take you to Romans chapter 9. And that incredible section that goes from individual salvation to the future of Israel's future salvation. But listen to what Paul writes in the middle of Romans 9.30. That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. Faith, but as it were based on, as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Note that phrase. Verse 33, as it is written, Behold, I am laying, here's a quote, Behold, I am laying in Zion, that's Jerusalem, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him, the stone, will not be put to shame. That's really important. It's really important. The Lord's saying there's going to be a new people of God that's made up of people from all over the world who are going to temporarily replace the Jews so that Jesus can establish his church. That's going to change the way God deals with mankind and saves them going forward. What he's talking about is the gospel in the story here and the church age. And that's really consistent with the Abrahamic covenant. Remember, Abraham's the father of faith. The Jews love Abraham. Abraham was not a Jew. Okay? He came from Ur of the Chaldees. But from him came the promised land and Israel and, and the Jews and etc. But then it says, there will be people from all nations and all times 
that will be justified by faith, including Israel. So this is all consistent with that. But these leaders, they didn't get that at the time, right? But if you read Romans 9 through 11 and Revelation elsewhere, I could tell you this. God isn't done with Israel, amen? He still has a covenant with them. But these leaders don't see all of that at the time. Now, you might say, okay, pastor, all this is very interesting. This is tragic, what's happened to Israel and the Jews for persecuting God's men and including their Messiah, the Son of God. Too bad. So sad. That's just their history. But they have a future, you know. You need to know this is real. There's real relevant application for you and me here today. You know, the United States is a country full of religious people like this. The Jew, the Gentile, they think they're just fine with God. Some think they got it made because at one point they made a decision in their life. They prayed a prayer, walked an aisle, signed a card. They got baptized in and of itself. And they think because of that, they're kingdom citizens. They're on their way to heaven. They're on their way to glory, regardless of how they walk and talk. Maybe that's describing somebody in this room. And that would mean this story is meant for you. Because for people that want little or nothing to do with the Lord, like it's just convenient, you might be on the Romans road. And the bad part of the Romans road, which is Romans 3 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Three chapters later, it says, and the wages, the payment, the penalty of sin is death. And that means eternal separation from God forever. But then you might come back and say this, how so, pastor, I haven't beaten, I haven't mocked, I haven't persecuted or killed any prophets or teachers like the people in the story, much less Jesus. In fact, in Luke's account, it says, when they, the Jews, heard this, they said, surely not, not us. This can't be us. But if you think this story doesn't apply to you still, I just ask you, listen, what have you done with Christ? You ever think about the fact that your sins, like millions of other people, are what put Jesus Christ on the cross? Your sins and mine. Do you know that all of mankind played a role in killing Jesus by virtue of our sin and wickedness? We all contributed to the cross. Have you just been casual and comfortable with Christ all your life in a fruitless faith? Because that's what's happening in this story. The Lord takes these Jewish leaders. They knew the word, at least superficially. They had the prophets, the oracles, the sayings of God, as Paul said in Romans 9. They had all the advantages, right? That wasn't enough. Didn't take advantage of it, right? So the Lord takes these Jewish leaders and he takes them to judgment. It's going to happen in the future to them. Back in our text, verse 10. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. It was amazing in our eyes, that means. So Jesus, again, appeals to the Bible here as the authority. He says, haven't you read the book that I gave you? And where is that? Well, that quote about the cornerstone, the stone being the cornerstone, that's a direct quote from Psalm 118, 
Isaiah 28. Should have known that. And again, who are we talking about? First, you're hearing cornerstone. What's a cornerstone? Whether you know anything about construction or not, this building sits on a foundation. The most important part of the foundation is the corner piece of which the foundation primarily sits. It's the most important part of the foundation, the corner stone. And Jesus here is the chief corner stone. He holds it together, everything, the foundation. If you break the stone, if you reject it, like in this case, the whole building is going to fall apart because the foundation collapses. Remember we talked about authority in chapter 11 last time? Let me parallel this for you. I'll quote the Lord again in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7. Now you'll see how these two texts tie together. Lord says in 724, Everyone then who hears these words of mine... This is Jesus talking. And does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the what? The rock. Stone. That's what a rock is. Verse 26. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. That doesn't sound real firm, does it? And the rain fell and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. That's the parallel here. Jesus is pictured as the cornerstone, the chief. He's the stone. He was examined. He was rejected by these builders who, in this analogy, are the religious leaders. And that prophecy is going to be fulfilled. Just a couple of days, they're going to cry out to, to Pilate, crucify him, crucify him. And interestingly enough, the rejected stone is going to be the resurrected stone when he rolls away that humongous stone from the tomb. And Psalm 118 celebrates that victory that God gives to his Messiah over death, establishing him on his throne. So this judgment, folks, is the Lord's doing. The real owner of the vineyard, the ultimate builder, God knows exactly what they're going to do, what they have to do in order to fulfill the Lord's sovereign will, His plan, His purpose that has to be carried out. As Acts 2.23 says, when Peter is preaching that first sermon convicting them, these religious leaders... In Jerusalem, he says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So back to the story. In fact, the New Living Translation adds in verse 11, this is a wonderful thing to see. This is a beautiful thing to see what's going on from a distance. This is the helicopter view of what God has done, what he's doing, and what he's going to do. Why? Because the Lord's cross leads to the risen Lord. If there's no cross, there's no crown. For a true born-again disciple of Christ, a Christian, in fact, the apostle Peter wrote, you are living stones being built up as the spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. That's marvelous, I think. And for the unredeemed, the unbeliever, I want you to see what Peter Speaking of Peter, what he added in 1 Peter chapter 2, 
Again, he brings up this language from the middle of verse 7. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. There's that quote again. And he says, in a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Look, Jesus knows the Jews have and will continue to stumble over him and his ministry. That happens today. It happens all the time. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul couldn't make it more clear when he says there, verse 23, about us. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly or foolishness to Gentiles, to most. The Jews are literally, they hear about the gospel and it's, just don't get it. Doesn't make sense to me. I was having this conversation just the other day with someone about how, how can a Jew read Isaiah 53 and not see Jesus all over the place in it, the suffering servant? It should, we were talking about it in our meeting, I think. And it should be as plain as day. But they don't see it. They just don't get it. Hello? Where are you? Don't you get it? It's a stumbling block to them. It's inconceivable to them. Not for us, 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing. It means on the way to being judged. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You have to have the cross and know the cross in order to be saved. The unredeemed, they don't get the cross. They don't like the cross. They're not going to ever understand the cross and its meaning to salvation. And so tragically, at the end of our text, Mark 12.12, 12, and they were seeking to arrest him, the Jews, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. <laughs> Tragically, they were, they were plotting against Jesus. So we know by now the they, the religious leaders, his arch enemies, they want Jesus gone, preferably dead. And according to the original Greek, they are conspiring. They're in a conspiracy. People talk about conspiracies today. This is a legit, real conspiracy here they're cooking up. But it's at the point and the height of his popularity in Jerusalem during the week. Remember, he rode in as a king, hailed as a king on Palm Sunday just a couple of days before. So it would still be politically incorrect to kill him or try to arrest him at that moment unless they could get him in some kind of trap, which we'll talk about next time. But we know from last time, after we, he turned over the tables of the money changers and he cleansed the temple court, that he spoke with authority. Jesus gave them questions they couldn't answer. And they were, it says, afraid. That's where we get the word phobia from in English. They were terrified of the people. They were man-pleasers and they were politicians too. They just go the way the wind is blowing. And at this moment, Jesus has all the momentum. They don't want to mess with that. So they, the Sanhedrin, the priests, it even says they perceived. That means, Gnosko, they intimately knew, understood in their hearts that the story was about them. You know, that word tells me they were convicted in their hearts. They finally got that much. They connected that dot. But Jesus is talking about them in terms of the judgment and the story. But not enough to believe. They were convicted, 
Sometimes you can have a worldly sorrow, not enough to believe. Because, you know, some people, they're going to hear a story or a straightforward truth about themselves. Have you ever witnessed to somebody, to loved ones, and you tell them right to their face that they're sinners and they're destined for hell and judgment, and they intellectually get it? They may even agree with you. They'll say something like this, yes, I believe God exists. I've offended him. I've rebelled against him most of my life. Yes, this Jesus is a real historical person, died and rose from the dead to save sinners like me. I get the story, but I don't believe. They still won't repent and trust in Christ. But we know why, don't we? We should know why, ultimately. Because Jesus told us why in John 3. And this is the judgment. The light, meaning himself and his truth, has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. People don't ever buy into the lie that there isn't enough evidence or proof for God, for the gospel, for Jesus and your faith. That's an excuse many people will give you. I've dealt with that, witnessing to folks. When I wasn't here last weekend, this is what I was spending about two hours talking to, a very good, relatively good man, a friend, a very big thinker, an agnostic, very philosophical. Now I'm giving him all these proofs for the Lord and the Bible. And after a while, I finally told him this to his face. I don't think I'd ever said it before. Maybe I was thinking of this text, having gone through it already. And I told him, you know why you don't believe? You don't want to. You don't like the implications. Implications are, if you believe in him, he's now the judge of your life. And you're accountable and responsible to him. And you just don't like that idea. And he was very quiet. He had no comeback. Absolutely none. And this is more than a unique thing. It's fairly typical. So the big idea, the big takeaway for us is twofold. First, you have to ask yourself, do I know Christ is my Lord and Savior? Or have I rejected him up to now, like the Jewish leadership, have I rejected the cornerstone? Typical religious people do that. They say they believe, and, but they just don't look like it. And that's why Jesus preached. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? That's what this story is about in terms of judgment on the religious. And secondly, what are we... Those that profess faith in Christ, what are we doing with what the Lord has given us, meaning the Word and the power of the Spirit? Are we walking and talking like Christ wants us to? And are we willing to persevere like these prophets in the story, these servants sent by the landowner to the tenants? We are to go preaching as if salvation depends on you, knowing salvation depends on the Lord. And folks, let me tell you, the insults, the mocking of Christians preaching their faith, it's begun. It's out. It's, we, the gun has gone off. The race has started. It's not going to get better. It's going to get worse for a while. I don't know how long. Maybe the Lord will come back first. But if you want to talk about your faith and live for your faith, get ready to be like one of these servants. You're going to be insulted, mocked, and like people our brothers and sisters in places like Asia, 
Africa, Afghanistan, Cuba. You'll be jailed, China. You'll be jailed if not killed for the faith. So the story about judgment on religion really just reveals the heart. It's not just about Jews historically. It's about us today. Who or what do you really love? God and his Christ or religion? The idea of Christ. And when I say religion, I'm talking about the system, the rules, the regulations, the rituals that people perform thinking that'll make them right with God or they're good with God. So to help you, I'm going to give you a quick little test and then we're done. I want to give you six signs of love. And I just rediscovered this um, in our the Hold Your God devotional with some of our men this week. I want you to see this. It's on the screen. And if you ever take pictures of stuff to save as notes, this would be a real good one to do, at least partially. I'll give you the contrast, six ways that you really love. People who love Christ as opposed to people who love religion, number one. People who love Christ want to hear sermons about Jesus. People who want to hear, people who love religion want to hear sermons about how he can fix their problem. Number two, people who love Christ count all things lost that they may know him. People who love religion want Jesus plus something else. Number three, people who love Christ come to church to focus on Christ. People who love religion come to church to be entertained, to feel that they have a purpose. And number four, people who love Christ believe that Jesus' obedience and death are the only things that make them acceptable to God, whereas people who love religion hope in something they have done or sacrificed or will yet do. Those are works, works righteousness. Okay. Number five, people who love Christ are interested in Jesus because of who he is. This is a big one. People who love religion are interested in Jesus because he is useful. That's a massive one today, from my observation. Number six, finally, people who love Christ love to exalt Christ. People who love religion love to be recognized and praised. I hope we pass the test. So I close with this from Josh McDowell. He was an, out, was an outstanding defender of the Christian faith. He was an apologist. And he wrote a 20th century classic. I know it had a big impact on me when I was coming to faith called More Than a Carpenter. In Spanish is a good version. Mas de un carpintero. And about that book, he said this. I initially examined Christianity in order to write a book making a mockery of it. After extensive research, however, I discovered that Christianity is not a religion of men and women working their way to God through good works, nor is it obedience to a pattern of religious ritual. Rather, it is a relationship with a living God through his son, Jesus Christ. And to my amazement, I was confronted with a person, not a religion. He added, Jesus was so different from what I expected. Other religious leaders put their teachings out in front. Jesus put himself out in front. And others would ask, are you responding to my teachings? Jesus just asked, how are you related to me? Let's pray. Father, we are quietly in our own spirit just given this directive to, through this test, through this text, we have been given reasons to reflect and see where we are with you. 
We don't want to be anywhere like the vine dressers, the farmers, the stewards in the story of the wicked tenants in that parable. We want to be the slaves. We want to be the servants who have submitted to you, come to you by faith. We love you. We want to obey you. We have a gratitude attitude about your law. When you say do something, we want to do it because we love you. Our have-tos become our get-tos. And I pray that's the spirit that each one of us carries going forward today, Lord God. And for someone that's been steeped in religion for so long, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that today will be the day they would be free from that. They would truly repent. They would truly turn from their sin and their self, their selfishness to Jesus by faith. Believe in him as the only one who could forgive their sins to make the payment for their sins because he is God in the flesh. We pray that might happen for someone listening, Lord. We pray these things. And all God's people did say, amen. Christ Community Church is a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and Bible-centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on us and to learn how to give towards our media ministry, please go to our website at www.ChristComChurch.org. That's ChristComChurchCom.org. And look for the Giving tab at the top of the homepage. 